I would ask you to take your copy of God's Word and find Romans chapter 1 in the Word. That's going to be a little easier to find than Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. In a few moments, I'll ask you to find that. You know, Habakkuk is nestled in between Nahum and Zephaniah. And all three of those books have just three chapters. So when you look for Habakkuk, it can be difficult to find that minor prophet because he's nestled in between Nahum and Zephaniah, and they're small books as well. But we will read Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, a little later. This morning, you get to read the text that changed the entire world. The course of history, as we know it today, is a passage that changed a man, and that man changed the world. I trust you know, well, I shouldn't say that today in our era. How many of you had ever heard of Martin Luther? Some of you are thinking of Martin Luther King Jr. And although he definitely had a major impact, civil rights, we're speaking of the reformer, Martin Luther. I trust you know the story. At one time, he was just this very obscure Roman Catholic monk who entered the monastery seeking to be set free from that heavy indictment of sin. An oppression that he felt in his life. And though he was an obedient son of the Holy Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, he had no rest for his soul. With all the prayers, with all the penance, with all the fasting, he still felt under the indictment of a holy God against his sin. His eyes were open as he studied this book. The book of Romans, and in particular, uh, it wasn't that he found the text, it was that the text found him, right, as he was studying the Word. So he pondered the meaning of Habakkuk 2, verse 4, which is quoted in Romans 1, 14 through 17. Luther offered this statement years later, and I quote, When the Spirit of God... When by the Spirit of God I understood these words, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again as a new new creation from God. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. When this passage found Luther, turned his life totally upside down. And once this blazing truth uh, got into the heart's and gripped the souls of many, many men, it ignited what would be the Protestant Reformation. It eventually spread to Europe and to the ends of the earth. And today we stand on the precipice of the commemoration of the 500th year anniversary of that Reformation. So when you say October 31st, 1517, or when you say October 31st, My first thought is never Halloween. You know, that's the eve of All Saints Day. All Saints Day was November 1st. I don't even want to give any credit whatsoever to the enemy to even think about something such as October 31st. uh, Any other way than praise God for a man of God who was touched by the Word of God and thus ignited the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why did God choose to use Martin Luther? I don't know. Why does he ever choose to use us at all? But in 1517, what we are celebrating today is not a man. What we are celebrating is a rediscovery of the central truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what was missing in the Roman Catholic Church. It wasn't through indulgences. It wasn't through uh, paying somebody out of purgatory. It wasn't grace that you could buy. It wasn't the sacraments performed or a bloodless mass that saved And Luther looked at all of that, and he was convicted by it. That's why he wrote those 95 questions and nailed it to the Wittenberg door. And that door was a place where everybody put their theological understanding or asked questions. And and so Luther nailed that there, and thus it began the Protestant Reformation. Never forget that date, October 31st, 1517, which means Tuesday, right? It will be 500 years that we are celebrating God's past work and the recovery of two primary doctrines that were so vitally important. 
Justification by faith alone and the authority of the Scripture alone. That we, we're not getting our understanding of God and who we are through traditions written by the Catholic Church. We don't accept traditions as equal to the Holy Word of God. We are going to let the Bible dictate what we believe. And of course, Luther didn't get it all right, but of course he got this right. And thus it began the Protestant Reformation. So we celebrate the doctrines, but here's the thing, church family. We can't be satisfied with what happened in the past. We too have a responsibility today to defend the Word of God. We have a responsibility to teach what the Word of God says. It needs to be heralded from the pulpit. It needs to be preached. That's why we're in the shape we're in in the United States of America. We listened to Fox News this morning and one pastor was talking about just why are we seeing uh, the fact that only 15% of millennials attend church at all. It's because the just aren't living by faith. They're not seeing it lived out in adults. They're not seeing us suffer for the value of the gospel in Jesus Christ anymore. They're not seeing those things clearly anymore. So, folks, we're in need of reformation all the time. We look at our lives and we say, God, am I personally living in accordance to the Scripture? If not, it's not the Bible that needs to be reformed. It's me, right? It's, not, it's the church that needs to be reformed. So we're in a continual cycle of needing to be reformed by the Word, not just individually, but by but the church as a whole. And many of us know Romans 1.17 most scholars will tell you that it is the thematic presentation of the entire book of Romans. And I believe that. I believe it's a summary of the book of Romans. Why? Because 1 through 17 or 1 through 16 is your introduction, which is uh, concluded by 117. And 117 is such an awesome, smooth transition to the rest of the book of Romans. So we see it as a thematic phrase. I think that is correct. The focus here is on the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the theme ends up of the book of Romans being that the gospel is the revelation of the righteousness of God from faith to faith. That is the theme of the book of Romans. And it focuses on the centrality of the gospel. Let's read the text this morning. Again, this passage changed a man. And thank the Lord... Uh, he was just an obscure Roman Catholic monk, and I'm sure he never imagined that we'd be sitting in this Protestant church today celebrating Jesus. Praise God, however. Romans chapter 1. Let's stand in honor of the reading today. Beginning in verse 14, we're going to talk this morning about the righteousness of God. Verse 14, the Bible reads, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what's the it? The gospel, right? Track with me. For in it, meaning the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written. And here's Habakkuk 2.4. The just, or the righteous, shall live by faith. You may be seated. Notice what Paul says. He says, I am eager, I am a debtor, and I am not ashamed. And here's the question. Why is Paul not ashamed? Because when you know the very power of God unto salvation, why should you be ashamed? When you hold in your mouth the truth of the Word of God that you're going to preach or share, that is the very power of God that brings about salvation in an individual's life, then how and why should we be timid 
or should we fear? What can a lost person do other than continue in disbelief or unbelief? Or what will they do with the gospel if the Lord God begins to open their heart and mind and soul and they believe? That's only the two options, right? They continue in unbelief or disbelief. Therefore, we should not be ashamed. He said, it is the power of God unto salvation. Why is it so powerful? Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, why is it so powerful? Because in it, the gospel, the very righteousness of God is revealed. Now that's an awesome expression, right? The righteousness of God. If you look across the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, and let's say you've got a forest that's just straight across, and you can see for just miles and miles and miles, but yet you've got these mountain peaks that stick up. Well, the mountain peaks, we might say, are the big central doctrines of the Christian faith. Creation, fall, redemption. But when you're looking out across, perhaps the largest mountain of all, and we think about gospel and Christ, ascension, I know all those things. But in relation to your humanity and your salvation from Christ alone, then that principle of the righteousness of God is a huge mountain peak. How can we say this? This phrase is ginormously huge. When you start considering righteousness of God, this subject has been discussed throughout history. It is, in fact, the very phrase that gripped the heart of Martin Luther that led to the Reformation. It is that phrase, the righteousness of God. It's hard to summarize it. It's hard to systematize a phrase such as the righteousness of God. Of all the Pauline statements, this one's gotten more ink than any of the others. What did Paul mean by the righteousness of God? How do you define such an expression of the righteousness of God? Now, when you read your Bible, say you're reading alone, along in your Bible, and you see the phrase, the righteousness of God, what comes to your mind? We ought to ask questions when we read the Bible, correct? I mean, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to me? Well, it is this question that led to the Protestant Reformation. There are three primary ways to view that phrase, the righteousness of God, okay? The first is that the righteousness of God is an attribute that belongs to God. Does that sound fair? If you're going to be saying that the righteousness of God has been revealed, then obviously we're dealing with a righteous God, so scholars study that, and they say, well, it's the divine attribute view. But when it comes to that being an attribute, there are two variations. The first variation is the one that gripped Luther's heart, meaning that God is absolutely just and holy. And when Luther looked at God being holy and just and pure and righteous and perfect, he looked at himself and he said, whoo, I'm not that way. So God is holy and immediately it magnified the sense of Martin Luther's sinfulness. He was standing on the ladder and uh, confessional stairs of the Roman Catholic Church. And the more he confessed his sin, the more he was aware. The more he tried to give penance to pay for his sins, the more he was aware of the depravity in his heart and soul. The Pope at one point said to Luther, go out and commit some real sin. And then come in here and confess it. Why? Because he was overwhelmed with the fact that something was not dealing with his sin. His sin was still hovering over his life. And he, he knew he could not pay that debt. So there's no question that Luther saw the divine, this divine attribute as condemnation. When he looked at the holiness of God, he knew that God was righteous and he was not. And he would say phrases like, I am undone. And that's exactly what we ought to all say before a righteous God, I'm completely undone. The other variation of the divine attribute view is that God upholds his own integrity. He is absolutely faithful to his own integrity. When we use phrases like God does things for his own glory, that means God is most committed to his integrity and who he is. And he's more committed to that than he is committed to you. He is ultimately most committed to his own faithfulness, 
His own glory, His own personhood, He by nature has to be that way. Why? Because He is God. So that's the first way that we deal with that. The righteousness of God. Well, we have a righteous God. The other way to see it is God's dynamic saving activity. What do we mean by that? Well, our God has intervened into our human lives. He not only is righteous, but God has dynamically and savingly intervened into humanity in order to save their lives. I know you're following this, but I'm going to preach all three of those points. This is not going to be the end, right? I'm just giving you an intro of what scholars have believed, this dynamic saving activity. Let me show you one of these in Psalm 98. Just listen. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So not only is God righteous... But when we say the righteousness of God, we could be discussing the fact that He has dynamically and savingly intervened into humanity's affairs in order to save sinners. The third way to see it is a gift bestowed. And that's primarily the way most of us think about that, right? When we say the righteousness of God has been revealed, here's what we say. God, I need the status of righteousness because you are righteous and I am not. We need the status of righteousness. How do you get the status of righteousness? You're declared righteous through Jesus Christ and Him alone. And you can't go to heaven if you're not righteous. Period. So, man, that's a huge loaded statement, is it not? When we say the righteousness of God, that is pregnant with meaning. It is a divine attribute of God. It does describe His dynamic activity coming to this world to save sinners. And it is a gift given to an undeserved sinner. The gospel reveals a righteous God. A saving activity to save sinners. And and again, a gift of righteousness. And here's what I want to do this morning. My goal, when I read the scholar's comments is why does it have to be one of the three when you read the righteousness of God is it perhaps that it's all three of them which it is because when you study the book of Romans you're going to find that it is clearly all three of these and here's how I want to preach the sermon I want to talk about those three things first the gospel reveals a righteous God y'all think that is true the righteousness of God has been revealed flip over just one page to Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 25. And let's see what the Bible says about the fact that God is absolutely holy and that righteousness reveals a holy God. What are we supposed to see when we look at at the cross? You are supposed to see a righteous God. Listen to verse 25. Whom God put forth... As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's, say it. Why was the cross? Why did Jesus die? Why? So that righteousness would be manifested. That's what the text says. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins... It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So what are we supposed to see when we look at the cross? We are to see a God that is so righteous that he cannot simply give sinners a free pass pass and a get-out-of-hell-free card. You ever played Monopoly? Wherever you land on that thing, you land on that get out of hell, get out of jail free card, and you just, yeah, yeah, or hell, either one, and you just spin all the way around and get back to start. Well, folks, Jesus did not come down from heaven because we get a free start all the way back to go at no expense. 
And you are, when you look at the cross, you are to see that on the cross, Jesus demonstrates that God is absolutely just. Sin is not made a non-issue in the gospel. Rather, sin is the central issue why the Son of God came down from heaven. It is the righteousness of God that is combating sin. It is the righteousness of God that is pouring out the wrath of God that you deserved on the Son of God as He is on the cross. That's what propitiation means. To appease the wrath that you deserve. Jesus took that wrath. So God is able to be righteous. You see it in the text, which means just. And He can also be the justifier. He remains righteous, but yet He can also... See, if He would have just saved you with no issue towards sin, He could not have been in His nature both just and the justifier. Sin had to be atoned for. Why? Because God is absolutely righteous. And so... Here, he is able to remain absolutely just and save sinners all because of Jesus. So what does the gospel do? Well, it highlights that we have a righteous God. Does the the gospel reveal that we have a righteous God? Absolutely. And if you don't understand this principle, then you make our God into some kind of marshmallow Santa Claus figure. And you do not have an accurate biblical view of the gospel and salvation. So these things are important. You saw that five-minute video and you think, well, preacher, that's archaic. What's that got to do with us today? It's got everything to do with you today. Everything to do with you. Why? Because we're missing the righteousness of God today. We see him as some kind of marshmallowy fellow way up in the sky who just kind of winks at our sin. And we just tip him and give him a favor. No, folks, listen to me. He is absolutely righteous. A hundred percent righteous. And when you see the cross, that's what you're seeing. When you see Jesus in your mind lifted up on that cross, He is becoming the propitiation for our sin. We have a righteous God who must deal with sin. He must deal with our sin, and He does it through the crucifixion of His Son. Hallelujah for that gospel. The second point. The gospel reveals a righteous God who has dynamically and savingly, I know I made that word up, but it fits, intervened, because, you know, when you do the spell check, it wouldn't let me do that. I could have said salvifically, but some of you said, what is that? So it's savingly, right? Just stick the L-Y on it. It is a saving activity on on our behalf through the Son. Does the gospel show the saving action of our God? Well, he says it in verse 16, correct? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So not only is God righteous, but it is an activity that God does. The gospel for salvation. God comes to the dead sinner. He enlivens them through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And He does it through free and sovereign grace. And He brings that person to life. And He bestows upon that person the gift of faith unto salvation. And this divine activity... Of God comes through the gospel to the sinner. The gospel reveals a righteous God who has savingly, dynamically intervened into this world on our behalf through His Son to save us from our sins. Galatians 4.4. Y'all know this passage? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a Virgin. Y'all know this verse? Born under the law, that he might redeem us from the curse of the law. Activity, right? God is righteous, but he just doesn't sit there. He acts. He sent his son into this world. John 3.16. In this manner, God loved the world, that he gave his only one unique son, that whoever, continuous action, believes into him, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you see the saving activity? Psalm 98, 1 through 3. God is acting in salvation. Number three, the gospel presents to us the free gift of righteousness, which is received by faith and results in eternal life for us. God is righteous. God acts. And God, through the gospel, when you believe, gives you the status of righteousness. You don't become righteous, but 
because you're all still sinners. You are declared righteous. Huge difference. We are declared righteous in the sight of God through the gospel. The word we use, big fancy word, is called what? Justification. You're justified. Romans 4, 5. The Bible says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Y'all better track with me today. You see that verse? That again encapsulates the theme of the book of Romans. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that the gospel is the very, in the gospel, the very gift of righteousness is bestowed upon guilty sinners. And you are declared innocent and right before God. We need the righteousness of God in order to stand before Him. Do y'all understand how true this is? Do you understand that you need righteousness to stand before a righteous God? Does that make sense? So in that particular understanding of the word justified, it means that someone that is guilty is pronounced innocent in that forensic sense. If you're righteous in God's eyes, then you can stand before Him and be declared not guilty. Who would dare to say in this room, I am good enough to go to heaven? Now, you live like that, and deep down sometimes you feel like that, but I don't think anybody's going to jump up on their feet today and say, in and of myself, I'm good enough to go, go to heaven. As someone once so rightly said, a clear conscience is a complete understanding of a poor memory. Oh, I just got a clear conscience, Pastor. No, you don't. You got a bad memory. I want to remind you of something. We're all sinners. You know why you need righteousness? Because you don't have it. Why do we need righteousness given to us as a gift? Because righteousness is something a lost sinner does not have. There's no way you can come up with that. It is not earned. It is not deserved. But it's given, according to the Bible, as a free gift. The Reformers called it alien Righteousness. Now, don't get wigged out. What does it mean for something to be alien? Well, it means it's outside of us. So the Reformers knew that if we were going to be made righteous, it has to come outside. We're going to be declared righteous. It had to come from outside of them. It is a righteousness that Jesus Christ gives to guilty sinners and declares us righteous, but it doesn't come from within us. It comes from Him. He's on the outside of us, right? It's not something from the inside. So my question is, how does the gospel then reveal the righteousness of God? The gospel. Well, there are two tenses that are very important here. You saw one in 117. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Y'all grammarians understand that that's kind of present tense, right? It is revealed. But in chapter 321, look at what it says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets. Do y'all see the tense difference there? One is a past perfect. Something that has taken place in the past with lingering, continuing results. That's what the word manifested means. Is revealed is present tense. Now why am I harping on this? Because the gospel has been demonstrated to us. Right? It's been made manifest. Paul thinks that you can't really talk about the gospel apart from the Old Testament. Because he said it's been manifested through the law and the prophets. Y'all know that's Old Testament? This means yes, this means no. So Paul is talking about something that is not old, that is not new. He's talking about something that is very old. As a matter of fact, Paul really can't talk about the gospel being true unless he says it's true from the Old Testament. Well, we forget that, don't we? We're poor when it comes to the Old Testament. But here Paul is revealing that it's been manifested through the law and the prophets. And did we see it manifested? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. We beheld His glory. 
the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So he was born, right? So we see the life, death, burial, glorious resurrection. Don't stop there. Ascension of Christ into heaven. That's called manifested. We know that. That is historical accounts of the gospel that we can read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Y'all with me? All right, folks, that means it's been manifested. The gospel has been manifested to us. Those things are a historical reality. Praise God. But that's not enough to save you. It has been manifested. It is revealed. And how is it revealed? It's revealed through the precious Word of God. When Paul preached it, I'm, a, I'm eager. I'm a debtor. I'm not ashamed. Why? Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. How does that happen, folks? Through the preaching of the word. You remember on the road to Emmaus? They don't, they don't recognize Jesus for whatever reason. I think it was divinely associated. They don't recognize him until he starts giving the word. And then the Bible says, they're, in essence, their hearts began to burn. And it was the Word of God that opened their hearts. And look, we've been preaching through Acts. What is it that saves sinners? It is they're converted through the listening of the Word. Faith cometh by. Folks, there's no faith apart from the Word. So it has been manifested. But it is revealed. And folks, I want to tell you something. You may believe all the historical accounts of the gospel verbatim. And you believe the veracity of the accounts. But has it been revealed to your life? Has it been? There's a difference in has been manifested. Yes, it's historical. But have you believed it? Has it been revealed to you by faith? That's called experiential. It's not something that is just their abstract accounts. Yes, we be, look, you can't be saved apart from the historical accounts. You've got to believe the gospel. You've got to believe all of it. But that's not enough to save you. You have to have the Holy Spirit of God open your eyes. You have to have illumination from the Word. You have to have the Spirit of God giving you understanding to respond by faith, experientially, personally, in order to be saved. Y'all understand all that? It's pretty clear. Regardless of what your experience was like, and those dynamics can be different. I mean, when Brother Jerry came to trust Christ, I mean, he may have just sat kind of subdued. And just reveled in the person and work of Jesus. But he experienced the gospel in your heart, didn't you, brother? And when you collide with the gospel, your soul is going to change. Well, for Paul on the road to Damascus, boy, what an experience he had. He was upright, and then he was on his back. And then he got up and he was blind for three days. That's a different dynamic than I had when I got saved. You know, I wasn't running around. I didn't drink, smoke, chew, and go with girls that do. I mean, I really didn't. I didn't have all these things that I could list out. I, Chris and I talk about this all the time. You know, you know, I can identify with Paul somewhat, you know, according to the law, blameless. I mean, I, I didn't go out and do all these crazy things. But I was nonetheless dynamically saved in my soul. I mean, your testimony may be different. Uh, I don't know what you came out of, but here's the deal. You still experience in your soul a collision with the gospel that changes your life, not just thinking about historical accounts. That makes sense. I'm going to do like Brother David. That's where I learned it. If you're not listening, I will start over all the way <laughs> at the front. That's why Jesus said you must be born again by the Word and by the Spirit. And when you encounter the very righteousness of God in the gospel... It's brought before you. It's brought upon your sinful situation. And you are changed, folks, and you're not the same. Now, in the South, which we're not in, but we're close, here's what the thing. Here, here's what a lot of church members equated with salvation and conversion. I was a Democrat, and now I'm a Republican. Look, folks, that's not conversion. That's not salvation. Salvation, according to the Bible, is that you are brought from death... To life. You are brought from being blind to having light. Understanding. Opening of the eyes. Uh, Colossians 1 says you're brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. Everyone's saved the same way. It's faith alone and faith always. 
How can I be right with God? The answer is simple. By receiving the righteousness of God, that comes only by faith. Y'all see it in the text? The Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17, For it in it, right, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, how? From faith to faith. Now again, do you know how many scholars have spent time trying to figure out what faith to faith means? How many of you know what that means? Raise your hand. You're saying, that's why we pay you, preacher, right? No. (laughs) Faith to faith. It actually can be in the Greek. From faith by faith. Well, there are people who have taken shots at that. Some people have written and said, well, that's degrees of faith. From faith to faith. Sounds nice. Others are saying, well, it's the faithfulness of God in turn to turning toward the faith of human beings. I think the best translation is this. Salvation through the gospel. It is faith from the start all the way to the finish. You say, is your interpretation right? Yes, or I wouldn't have told you that. (laughs) You ought to always believe that I know what I'm talking about. Otherwise, I'd have told you something else. Right? I might be wrong, but I'm very confident that I'm right. Especially on this one, from faith to faith. That phrase is so important. And no matter how you view this in your explanation of faith to faith, where does the accent fall? On faith. Can we agree with that much? That the accent is upon faith and faith alone. Let's cut to the chase. Here's what I believe. The power of God unto salvation, which is the revelation of the righteousness of God, we've unpacked that, right, is revealed to those who have faith. Bang. Period. That's how this righteousness is revealed. God's attribute of righteousness, His saving dynamic of righteousness towards sinners, and the very gift are all received by faith. All three. The saving righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and that is what creates faith in the sinner. You do know that faith is created in your heart. It's not something you muster up as a virtue in your life. That is impossible when you're dead. I've been to a bunch of funerals lately. And I've yet to have one person stand up in that corp, as a corpse and stick their head up and say, I've got faith. Folks, when you're dead, you're dead. You do not have the ability within yourself as a human to respond in faith. The God of eternity has to create faith in your heart. Hello? It's a gift from God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. So God is creating this faith. When the Spirit of God opens your eyes and you believe, you believe by faith. And this is the only way that salvation comes to us. So when we say phrases like, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, then we are not just giving out some kind of uh, tidbits of reformation. We're not just trying to, to give out some kind of Protestant quirkiness. What do you mean by all these solas? Folks, you understand that that's the central part of the gospel. That you can't be saved apart from grace through faith in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. We're dealing with the central aspects of the gospel. Now, is faith to faith, meaning from start to finish, correct? Do I, did I get it right? Well, how does Paul respond? He follows up from faith to faith with this phrase. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Y'all see that? The just shall live by faith. Now, where is that found? I need to speed up because it's late. Where is it found? Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Who is Habakkuk speaking to? You have the Babylonians who are lost and prideful, self-righteous. And then you have the righteous ones. So think with me for a moment. When Habakkuk said the just shall live by faith or the righteous shall live by faith, did y'all know that he was speaking to the ones who were already righteous? The just, the righteous, God turns around and tells Habakkuk in the vision, the just, the righteous will live by faith. Why? Because the world's falling apart around you. There's difficulties on every hand. And Habakkuk's thinking, God, that's not the answer I wanted to hear. And then God reminds Habakkuk 
that those who are righteous are going to live by faith, unlike the Babylonians. So, Paul, so Habakkuk is dealing, by, dealing with righteous ones. Habakkuk is dealing with a comprehensive understanding that people who are righteous will live righteously. Okay? Paul turns around and he uses the just shall live by faith as the foundational principle for the gospel. So why does Paul do that? Well, I got a, I've got news for you. Paul knew Habakkuk better than I did. And Habakkuk knows, and Paul knew Habakkuk better than you do. So Paul saw in this comprehensive statement something else. He saw that not only do the righteous live by faith, but from the beginning you are made righteous through faith. So Paul looks at that statement and he understands that those who are righteous had a beginning and that beginning started with faith. And those who live out righteous lives do so by faith. And does that sound like the principle from faith to faith? I told you I got it right. Habakkuk wasn't even talking about initial salvation and righteousness. He was talking about the fact that the righteous ones will live by faith. And here Paul turns around and uses that as the basis and, and the statement, the foundation principle of salvation. The just shall live by faith. In other words, from start to finish, it is all about faith. He's going to quote, the just shall live by faith in Galatians 3. And he's also going to quote it in Hebrews chapter 10. I wish I had time to unpack that. But from Genesis to Revelation, we have the revelation of the righteousness of God. You know why? Because from Genesis to Revelation, we have the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that he is a righteous God who must act and act he does. He acted in faithfulness to his glory and person by sending his own son into this world to give us the free gift of righteousness. What a remarkable thing. And folks, think about this. Here's the most remarkable thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, believing into him, you've repented, turned from sin, you trusted Jesus only, then God reckons you just as righteous as his son. Are y'all listening? If you are in Jesus Christ today, and the Father looks at you, He sees the very righteousness of His own Son. And that is why you can be accepted before God. That's why there's only one gospel. That's why there's only one way to heaven. Because you can't be made righteous apart from Jesus Christ. And the most remarkable thing is that when the Father looks at me, what He sees is not my filth. He doesn't see my guilt. He doesn't see... The sin, he doesn't see the shame nor the corruption. He sees the spotless, pure righteousness of his own son. Which is why he accepts me and why he embraces me. It's all because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God's righteousness. Let's say it this way. God's righteousness becomes ours through faith righteousness so that we can say the just shall live by faith. And when Luther came across this verse... He took his pen at the end of that phrase, the just shall live by faith, and he wrote one word in the margin of his scripture. Sola. The just shall live by faith alone. And boy, did it ever arrest his heart. Save his soul. That the just shall live by faith. Here's the application this morning. The righteousness from God is received only by faith. Right? From this text, the only way it can be received is by faith. Romans 3.23 tells us something. That we're all in the same boat. And I'm telling you folks, that boat sprung a huge leak. And the Bible says in Romans 3.22b and 23, For there is no difference. For we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're in the same boat that I'm in, folks. You don't have a special boat without a leak. David made that clear. When he preached on Adam's sin as federal headship given to us. Right? By one man's sin, sin entered into the world. Period. We're all in the same boat, ladies and gentlemen. That boat's going down. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It makes no difference whether you're rich or poor or young or old or black or white or male or female. We all stand condemned by our sin and we're all under the judgment of God. We're all in the same boat. We've got a big problem. And here's that big problem. We secretly think that God makes deals. 
You've thought about that today, right? God, if I just do this one more thing. Look, we secretly believe deep down that God makes deals. Lord, if I try hard enough, if I do my best, if I clean up my act, if I play by the rules, if I treat people right, if I put a little more money in the offering plate, surely you're going to let me go to heaven. I'll remind you again of Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, not even one. You say, Pastor, you're not righteous. No, not on my own. Only through Jesus Christ. There's none righteous. No, not one. Jesus is the only righteous man who ever lived. He was pure and holy and spotless in every single way. He was tempted in sin, but never one time sinned. Look, folks, if you want your sins forgiven and you want to go to heaven, learn this lesson. God doesn't make deals with sinners. If you're going to go to heaven and have your sins forgiven, you've got to get this right up front. God makes no deals with sinners. You got it right, Amanda. You got it right. God does not make deals with sinners. If you come to God on the basis of your good works, you're going to be turned away every single time because you missed the mark by 100%. But if you come to God on the basis of His righteousness, provided to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be accepted. Only through faith. And finally, by the righteousness of God in the gospel, men and women are declared just in the sight of God. And this is what plagued Martin Luther. How can I be just? How can I be made right? How can I be declared righteous before God? Here's what his son said about his dad. This is Dr. Paul Luther, the reformer's youngest son. Here's what he said. In the year 1544, my late dearest father, in the presence of all of us, narrated the whole story of his journey up to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come to a knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way. As he stood repeating his prayers on the ladder and staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk suddenly came to his mind. The just shall live by faith. Therein he ceased his praying, returned to Wittenberg, and took that as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. The just shall live by faith. And from that unlikely setting, the Protestant Reformation began to spread like wildfire. Phrases such as sola fide, by faith alone. What does that mean? Faith alone, not by works of the law. By faith alone, not by obedience to a church. By faith alone, not by human righteousness. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Faith alone, not acts of charity. Faith alone, plus or minus nothing. Faith is complete reliance upon a person to do for you what you can't do for yourself. In the, in, in the realm of saving faith, it is reliance upon Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Lewis Schaefer said that believing in Jesus means trusting Him so much that if, if He doesn't take me to heaven, I'm not going to go there. Folks, here's the deal. I like that statement. You know why? Because I'll, I'm all in on Jesus and Him alone. And if He doesn't take me to heaven, I'll just be damned. That's what it means to be all in on Jesus Christ. Sometimes people have said to me, Pastor, why do, you put all, why do you want to put all your eggs in one basket? I've got news for you. I'm going to put every egg in that basket when that basket's labeled Jesus Christ. All my eggs are in that basket because it's labeled Jesus Christ. He's the only one that ever lived the righteous life, and he gave that life for sinners like me. Are all your eggs in that basket labeled Jesus or is your basket labeled good works? Or church attendance? Which you ought to come to church, right? But that's because you're saved, not because you're wanting to be saved by the church, right? What good advice? It's not good advice if you put all your eggs in one basket financially investing, right? But you're a fool if you don't put all your eggs in the right basket with Jesus Christ. When it's labeled that way for your soul. Some years ago, Josh McDowell was debating a Muslim and at one point, the Muslim tried to ridicule the Christian faith by saying, you Christians are just riding on the back of a crucified man. And Josh McDowell replied, you're right. We're riding on the back of a crucified man, and this crucified man is going to take us all the way to heaven. Amen? He's going to take us all the way to heaven. Here's the good and bad news of the text. Bad news first. You have no hope of heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Good works can't save you. 
Nothing you can do will make the least bit of difference for your eternal salvation, not on your own. Here's the good news. Those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are saved forever. That's the real meaning of the just shall live by faith. One of the great hymns that came out of the late 19, uh, of the seven, uh, 700s was a song called Only Trust Him. And it was written by John Stockton. It was later taken by Ira Sankey. And he used that song for his evangelism efforts when he was the music director for D.L. Moody. And they asked Ira Sankey why that was such a great invitation hymn. And he said, because that's the gospel. Only trust Him. How many of you know that? That song, Only Trust Him? Only is the right qualification. Amen? Trust is the only right action. Only trust Him. Only right qualification. Trust, right action. Him, right object. Don't ever forget that. You're not going to heaven if you hadn't only trusted Him. Only trust Him. We're going to do two things. We're going to sing one of the hymns that came straight out of the Reformation because Martin Luther wrote it. He wrote 36 hymns. And by far the most popular is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Most people think he probably wrote it around 27, 17 years later. And he wrote it because there was a pending plague coming on the people. People were dying left and right. And he writes about the, the sovereignty of God over the enemy, Satan, and the fact that the right man is on our side. And his name is Jesus Christ. And then we're going to sing as the invitation, only trust him. Let's stand to our feet.